Welcome to another episode of Esports Boom, your almost weekly esports business podcast. My name is Maurice Eisenman, and I'm joined by two very special guests this week. Uh, returning on the podcast is Nathan Lindbergh. Nathan, how are you? Good. I'm going to formally apologize for the entire episode in advance. Uh, not only of bringing a second special guest, but also of just you know, my last episode and the 94 minutes of pain that all of your guests went through. Well, well, there's a reason why you're returning guests. Apparently, the guests like being tortured. Fair enough, um, fair enough. And uh, as a special guest, uh, we have Justin Lario. Obviously, both are, are from Twitch. Justin, very happy to have you on. Thanks, excited to be here and mostly make fun of Nathan. Yeah. So so similar to the last, the last time we had Nathan on, uh, just a warning for the audience, we brought plenty of, of good beer, which, we'll, which we will be enjoying, so I apologize for any, any sipping noises. Um, but uh, because it's, it's, it, Nathan uh, is a return guest, uh, we'll focus you know, primarily on the news stories of the past two weeks. And um, a lot of big stories out there, so, so very, very excited. I think the second half or the second part of the podcast uh, will kind of, you know, have a free-flowing conversation. I think one of the topics we can talk, we can touch on is sports gambling and potential effects of esports, and uh, we'll see where it's, where we where we where we uh, take it from there. Uh, so the first story is that Epic Games will provide one hundred million dollars for Fortnite esports tournament prize pools in the first year of competitive play. So Epic said in their press release. In the 2018 and 2019 season, Epic Games will provide $100 million to fund prize pools for Fortnite competitions. We're getting behind competitive play in a big way, but our approach will be different. We plan to be more ex- inclusive and focus on the joy of playing and watching the game. So, Justin, having set up you know, multiple uh, you know, successful esports tournaments um, and being heavily involved in the scene in general, what are your initial thoughts on, on this release? I think it's exciting news. I mean, I think that uh, Epic understands they've potentially reached critical mass in terms of like influencer engagement and, and penetration with regard to audience buildup. Um, that increasing the you know the total breadth of reach with regard to Fortnite content, not even just esports, but content generally, is going to only come from now adding premium content on top. And what we've seen to date. Is user-generated content and it's done extremely well better than half of the esports out there now they're gonna add on premium content which is really important to a, a vertical success on Twitch and I'm just I'm really excited to see what kind of happens from that yeah I mean I look at this and I'm like lightning in the bottle right like there is <clears throat> this really interesting bump that has happened now we've had the Fortnite effect kind of like we had the League of Legends effect on Twitch four or five years ago where like, we just saw this increase of audience and What's great about it is twofold, right? First and foremost, it's not a recycling of other esports content. It's new people on the platform. Twitch is a platform since I've been here, since I've been gone, have gone from 10 million daily uniques to 15 million daily uniques. Got to thank Fortnite for that. Like That's a big factor in terms of why we're growing our audience and, and the more people we're bringing into the platform. And if I have to field one more phone call from a sponsor with a brand new creative idea of, Let's do Drake, Ninja, and Fortnite. Like, I understand it's cool and it's topical, but like, I mean, everybody is hot on Fortnite. Everyone's talking about it. You know, my wife's cousin texted me the day, said my kids are playing Fortnite. Everyone I talk to is playing Fortnite. Like, it's a great moment for the, the gaming space. And I think that's really important. 
But what this space has certainly lacked is that professional esports content. And what I like most about this announcement is the is the plain and simple fact that it's ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And we're already seeing the fact that when they talked about what they're doing at E3, $3 million is a prize pool, but it's going to charity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really exciting to look at in terms of what they're doing with that $100 million. It's not necessarily going into someone's pocketbook, but it's $100 million to invest to make the space better. Well, speaking of being ambiguous, if I'm going to take words right from the announcement, it's specific, it says, we plan to be more inclusive and focus on the joy of playing and watching the game. Anyone who's been paying any attention to all the Fortnite in recent months knows that there's this mass of user-generated content, and there's this additional layer of user-generated content with tournaments or uh, streamers coming together and creating organized competition that looks like esports, but isn't necessarily because these aren't even the best players in the world. They're just highly entertaining people playing Fortnite together at one time, which creates like these moments on Twitch, right? Um, I have a strong feeling that they've seen that success mm-hmm. recently, and Epic plans on supporting that tenfold in addition to some version of pro versus pro esports. I think the key word here, and I don't think I think it's put in there on purpose, is competitive play. So clearly, they didn't pick the word esports on purpose. Uh, I think the focus for them, and they mentioned you know focusing on the joy of playing and watching the game. They know that one Fortnite isn't quote-unquote, esports ready in the classical sense, but secondly, they don't need to be. It's a it's where some esports are more like wrestling, Fortnite is more like WWE in the sense that you care more about the joy of watching it than you necessarily care about the highest level competitive play, in my opinion. Let me, let me just rattle off some names, right? Mm-hmm. Last couple of months, Travis Scott, Juju Smith, uh, Deli Ali, Harry Kane, Right, Zlatan Ibrahimovic the other day was playing with his with his cousin on stream. Like Fortnite is bringing really great non-endemic personalities to the platform. That's a fantastic thing. I want to see them involving more of those people. Right, we want to see people like Post Malone, uh, people like Demetrius Johnson, people like Dead Mouse. Like we want to see personalities getting involved. And you know we've seen the Milwaukee Brewers streaming Fortnite on the jumbotron of their stadium, right? Like it has hit Barstool Sports in a way that Barstool Sports was not prepared. And I think that that helps, if nothing else, it helps mainstream gaming. And I think that's a great and fantastic thing. Um, And the the fact that they're continuing on that notion of you don't have to be the top 1% of the 1% to have fun success in Fortnite I think it's just an epitome of the game itself, right? Like, you don't have to necessarily have 19 kills to be the winner of Fortnite, right? It's about strategy. It's about fun. It's about inclusion. And I think overall, they're really doing a nice job of embracing this to get the maximum number of people participating and ultimately, our hope, watching. Yeah, I mean, the biggest winner besides Epic Games, potentially, and, and tournament organizers and streamers in this case, obviously Twitch. I mean, because... I don't think a large part of this $100 million will go to tournaments and competitive play on, on, on competing platforms. I would like to argue that all of it will be at least streamed also on Twitch. I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. I'm just glad that there's, there's word and there's news from Epic on what's to come. I mean, we've been uh, chomping at the bit to produce some tournaments ourselves, and especially those that involve a lot of content around our personalities. But... You know, we're generally um, you know, a bigger company in the space, so we're respective of working with our partners closely to determine when it's the right time to produce additional content. 
I mean, if you've paid any attention recently to the category on Twitch, uh, the most significant tournament that's been going on is Fortnite has been uh, spearheaded by none other than Keemstar. Keemstar yeah. Meanwhile, you have all these like positive influence <laughs> in the space with great brands who tailor and curate to these amazing audiences. And because they've had no other option, they're aligning with a with Keemstar. A controversial figure. Controversial <laughs> figure. So like I'm just happy to see that like this is news that that will hopefully go away sometime soon. I mean if UMG wants to talk to Twitch and work with somebody that's like not Keemstar, like let me know. But um, I'm just hoping that that gets replaced quickly because I, I hate to see some of my favorite streamers associated there. Yeah, and I actually want to go out on a limb too and actually give Epic Games a little bit of space because at the end of the day, what they're expected to do in terms of growing their esports strategy in no time flat is really tough. Oh, yeah. I mean, you are being, you know, it's like we talked about this the last time with like esports and sports. It's like third child syndrome. It's like, what? Your, your older brother can drive. Why can't you drive? It's like, mom, I'm six years old. Like, come on, take it easy on me. But the reality is, is like Fortnite hits has tremendous growth and success. And like the next day, everyone's like, what's your esports strategy? What's your esports league? Where's the esports opportunity? I want to be a part of it. It's like, man, you need to be able to take time to digest, understand what's hitting, what's not, and be able to really put together a strong, successful strategy and honestly, I give Epic a tremendous amount of credit for not just going all out and being like, esports is blah, blah, blah. Like, they've really done a nice job of circling the wagons, kind of in discussing internally. And now they put out a post saying, listen, we hear you. We're going to invest big. We're going to make it work. But at the same time, like we've waited to make sure we know what we're doing. I'm, I'm really happy specifically with, with all the Fortnite craze, so to say, is that the fact that the Twitch personality, the Twitch streamer, is getting a lot more attention now. I mean, I mean, obviously Ninja is the go-to name, but a lot, at least from, from my you know, conversations, a lot of marketers are all, all of a sudden, you know, they know Ninja, well, they can't reach Ninja, Ninja can't work with everyone, and they realize that, wait, there's a whole group of people underneath. And a large, an even larger group of people that doesn't even play Fortnite, but has dedicated communities that show up and watch every single day. And it was, you know, Twitch streamers were kind of the biggest, you know, hidden secret. I hate to use like something, a phrase like this, but in marketing. I mean, they were heavily underappreciated. I'm actually really glad you said that because I wanted to say that, but I didn't want to sound too, you know, inauthentic. Um, but I think the reality <laughs> of the whole thing is that, you know, like, it's tough, right? Because you see the, the tweet that comes out, right? And it's like, in the month of April, Ninja had more social interactions than Cristiano Ronaldo. And I know a lot of VPs and CMOs who saw that stat and they were like, get me Ninja right now. And I appreciate that. I understand that. But just like um, every celebrity out there, whether it's music, sports, entertainment, whatever it is, they're not a one-size-fits-everybody brand. And I think my hope is, is that Ninja and Fortnite and the phenomenon draw a lot of people in, but get a lot of people talking on what the right strategy is for their brand. And while I agree Ninja's a good fit for a lot of brands, it's not a great fit for every brand. And I would hope that brands will take the time to discuss, deliberate, and ultimately find the right people to support their brand in the space. But would love to see more brands involved because of it. Well, at least we can say it's a good time to be selling ads on the platform. Um, it's never a bad time. <laughs> um, but, you know, continuing our, our 
focus on Fortnite for our second story. And Nathan, I think you already alluded to this story, but Epic Games finally announced more details with regards to their E3 Celebrity Pro-Am uh, Fortnite tournament. So the tournament is set for June 12th and will feature 50 celebrities and 50 quote-unquote pros. These pros can be streamers as well. They're just personalities in the space. According to the official announcement, uh, it will be Epic Games' first developer-supported event, and they will play for $3 million for charity. So the announced teams uh, so far are Ninja and DJ Marshmallow. Uh, Ninja and Marshmallow happen to be you know, friends in, in real life as well, so this combination makes a lot of sense. Uh, TSM Myth and, and Paul George, um, Pokemon and Designer, uh, and Markiplier, Joe McCalley, and Gotaga, and D Demetrius Johnson of US UFC fame. So, uh, Nathan, looking at this from, from a content perspective and, and just from kind of a new way of setting up tournaments, uh, what do you think? I mean, listen, JD and I are tag team champions of the world when it comes to creating and monetizing esports content. And this is literally the kind of event that I just drool over. Like the, the, the big name personalities, the credibility of the great broadcasters that are involved in this. I mean, this is a sponsorship and ad sellers just absolute dream scenario. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like they're gonna actually have any sponsors mm -hmm. for it, which again is fine. I think we're in a space where there is room for Epic Games to crawl, walk, run. And I think that that's okay. Uh, I think this event will do tremendously well. E3 is really revolutionizing itself from a really a retail event into an esports consumer event. This is a perfect way to do that. It's a perfect opportunity to do that. Um, I, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, obviously, guys like Ninja and 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 TSM Myth, like you know, I'm not going to tell them they don't need any more money, but they don't really need any more money. They're doing well monetizing. It's great to see them putting money towards charity and bringing these things together. Um, I just think this breaks down barriers. At the end of the day, it gets people talking. You don't have to be a ninja fan. You don't have to be a myth fan. You don't even have to be a gamer. You might be an NBA Finals fan who's like, oh my God, I love Paul George. Paul George doing this Fortnite thing. Awesome. If this brings more people into the world of gaming, again, not going to say esports. I know it's esports boom. But if this brings more people into gaming, I think that's a win for the space. It's a win for the opportunity. If we can get more people watching on Twitch, I know Justin's going to be happy. I mean, you don't have to be, you don't even have to say gaming. It's the fastest and growing media and entertainment property in the mm -hmm. world today. Mm -hmm. And taking an event that already has for several years, kind of uh, at a mo for a moment in time, expanded a little bit beyond gaming because of the tech intersection, the celebrity intersection that occurs around E3, but then creating this much noise at one time, they're going to draw a lot of extra attention. If Fortnite isn't solidified in some way today, this event is going to help it uh, quite a lot. Having been in conversations with Epic very recently about this event, I know that one of the reasons they've decided not to monetize in the way that you mentioned, Nate, and to follow up on what you said, is they're, they're really thinking about this event as a big hug to their community. Mm -hmm. They do not, it does not go unknown to them that their community is a huge part of what's been happening in the recent months. And they feel like this event in some way, shape or form, is going to be a big hug to their community. They're not worried about monetizing it right out in the beginning. They have $100 million worth of esports plans to focus on that and get that right. Yep. But I imagine that the community is going to see, uh, receive some surprises at this event that they're going to be very happy about. And everybody's just going to enjoy it, whether you're watching at home or you're attending in person. I know I'll be there. <laughs> and I'll be cheering on some of the worst players because that's the fun part. And I want to see one celebrity somehow 
uh, overtake yeah. Ninja, but that's just because it'll create a super hype moment, and Twitch is all about moments, right? Yeah, I, I just want to see like Demetrius Johnson <laughs> yeah. like take Ninja out, and I just, I want to see the celebration that happens both in game and in his chair when that moment happens. Like that, that, that's the great part of this, right? And I think that this is really what we're looking for. And, and esports, everyone wants to to make a real regimented you know designation of what that means. And I think that moving forward, the battle royale genre if nothing else, has stretched the limits of what esports is and isn't. And if at the worst, it's created a really aggressive dialogue of what's in esports and what's not, and at best, it's opened up the tent fivefold, I think either one of those scenarios are a good scenario for us in the space. Just, you know, focusing just on E3 as a, as a property. I mean, you alluded to this, Justin, but... Um, we've seen E3 expand and become, you know, even the fact that they put a heavier focus on, on their on, on their broadcast is, is really good news. But um, last year, for instance, we saw some competitive play. Uh, we saw um, T-Mobile had their Street Fighter activation. Yeah. Um, we saw, I think Nintendo had a, um, had a Splatoon tournament and a Pokemon tournament. Uh, but it was, you know, the, the, while the, the Street Fighter tournament had a lot of big names, Anything but that was relatively small. I mean, this, you know, clearly a large part, physical large part of the venue, and I think I would argue a large part of the broadcasting time will be focused on this. I mean, this is a highlight of E3. Yeah, I mean, listen, Justin and I worked intimately on the eSports arena last year with T-Mobile. I sold it, and Justin had to execute it. And uh, it was great. Like, we had, you know, we had Street Fighter, we had Tekken, we had uh, Overwatch, which was amazing. The Overwatch yes. announcement of Team USA. Uh, great partnership with not only Endeavor, who represents T-Mobile, uh, Chris Mann and Tatiana, but obviously Adam Sunshine and Meredith Starkey on the team. Like it was a great effort. Like I, we wish we could have replicated that again this year. Um, but well, it, you know what was awesome about it too. I think even before that event, um, despite it being you know an esports arena, not, not the championship of any game, but like just kind of like an arena size activation. When before that event had you heard LA Live and esports in the same sentence? Like LA Live draws reference when people are talking about something going on at Staples Center and there being an outdoor activation or a big or concert, yeah, concert or something. But this was an esports arena in LA Live. Granted, it was ninety million degrees outside, yes. and I'm pretty sure not an exaggeration. <laughs> but but uh, doing an esports event outside in LA Live was great, and we were and. and at the same time, we were also talking with ESA. We were talking about how to expand that broadcast footprint of E3 and build broadcast content properties that are associated with E3. And we also work hand-in-hand with Nintendo on mm-hmm. the Pokémon tournament and the Smash uh, events of recent past. So uh, ESA is taking this seriously, and I'm absolutely certain that when Epic presented their ideas for this year, and we were involved in those conversations as well, that ESA was just as excited as they were last year when we brought them the team all over. This is just good for gaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just 100%. Like, E3 is, is obviously the marquee time of year for the ESA. Being able to take a, a game like Fortnite with all the excitement, with all the, the general excitement in the audience, um, the mainstream appeal, to be able to highlight this in a major way, aces. E3 is going through a kind of a shift themselves. I mean, they're focusing on being more consumer-oriented. Last year, they opened up their hall to the public for the first time. Uh, and obviously, you cannot be more consumer-focused than a massive, you know, uh, fan tournament dedicated, you know, on Twitch. Uh, excited to see, you know, 
how the role of E3 will evolve with these type of things, if it will. Yeah, I think if you look at a great, to me, a great roadmap is Gamescom. I love Gamescom. I, it's a major event. It's big. It's 350,000 people. But they nicely separate it between business and consumer. And I, I just think that's a really great blueprint of what E3 can become. Whether it can, all that can fit in the LA Convention Center, that's a whole other conversation topic. Um, but I do think that there is a case to be made that E3 can evolve into something that is consumer and business and still be incredibly successful and very pivotal to the overall games industry, which I think is ultimately what it's always been, right? It's been that beacon, that moment where you plan around that. You plan that and you plan holiday and that's your big focus. I think it could still be that. So moving on to our next story, and this is one you don't see very often, but the Arab Esports Federation and Global Esports Resources uh, announced their 11-country agreement. And the way they phrase that is to consolidate esports activities. So the 25-year exclusive agreement calls for GER, which is a, an esports strategy planning execution company, more on that later, to own, develop, and operate on behalf of and in conjunction with the Arab Esports Federation, a all-inclusive esports gaming portal to aggregate and manage the esports and video gaming activities of the 11-member AEF countries. So just, you know, who are these countries? It's Algeria, Bahrain, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Morocco, Oman, Saudi Arabia, Libya, Tuni Tunisia, and the United Arab Emirates. It was signed in June of 2017. Uh, they just announced it. So it will be headquartered in Riyadh, um, and their focus is to create a platform to enhance the development of video gaming in the Arab region and establish a unified vision of strategy for youth with a global perspective. So that's a lot of buzzwords. One of the key objectives of the AEF is to establish regional championships among the Arab youth and to encourage them to participate in international tournaments. So this is the first time we're seeing uh, government being involved on such a large scale and a multinational agreement. Um, so Justin, you know, what are your initial th thoughts on this story? You know, I've, I've, kind of, I've kind of got two thoughts on this issue. I mean, can I, mean I, can I just say one thing first? I'm proud of them for spelling esports right. Yeah. I'm very proud. Like, that is a great moment in esports. It's like, I went through the article and I literally was just scrolling it through as you pulled it up. And I'm looking at this every time spelled correctly. Props to that PR person. Yeah. <clears throat> so Continue, Justin. One of my thoughts is that this is a positive step in the right direction for the Middle East, where I know that for some time there's been a high interest in competitive gaming. Uh, there are some fighting game events to, um, specifically that have done very well in mm -hmm. recent years in places like Kuwait and Bahrain. Um, to see them uh, potentially combine resources to make a bigger impact and potentially uh, provide a larger player base, a player base that comes together, competes, and produces events. It only opens doors to things like monetization and producing more content that's uh, meaningful on a global scale. Um, but the other, my other thought on this issue is uh, having spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I've been to almost every single country on their list. And I've seen a lot of things like this happen in the past, whether it's in the political or defense space, um, government, political, but now esports. There's a high potential that this is the type of thing that somebody did because it drew attention for a moment in time and it won't amount to anything. That said, I'll go out on a limb and say, you know, at Twitch we're willing to, we're willing to coordinate and help drive this thing forward if anybody's out there wanting to talk about the 
uh, how to take this alliance and um, have it go somewhere. I mean, if I don't know if anyone here in this group at least has been in the Middle East, but there's there's a ten common tendency for uh, I think in the, in the early two thousands it was shopping malls, mm. like uh, one random oil prince after another would create a shopping mall, and the idea was to create a much better one than the previous to include their shopping malls in Kuwait currently that have indoor ski slopes and uh, uh, Maserati test driving tracks yeah. inside shopping malls. So um, again, I'm going to be observing because it's high interest to me, but I, I hope it goes somewhere. Well, I did pull the Nielsen reports and uh, <laughs> esports boom is huge in, uh, in, in Tunisia. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we could we could look forward to some feedback for you, Justin. Uh, you know, again, I think at the end of the day, any deal that doesn't involve a game publisher, while inspirational and very exciting, has very little credibility. I mean, obviously, I love the fact that these countries are going to work together to bring more publishers to town to try to share resources. To, uh, to bring esports to the mainstream, to bring gaming to the mainstream, that's great stuff. Like, no one's gonna argue that. I think that it's just like with, you know, the esports federations and stuff that are out there, it's just, it's really hard to have credibility when you're creating a founda- you know, federation or a partnership around IP that you don't have any control over. Uh, so I will be interested to see how that whole thing plays out, how these countries are able to work with game publishers, certainly, you know, the riots, the epic games, the, the Activision blizzards of the world to bring their esports opportunities there. Obviously, Justin and I have worked intimately with both the Capcom Pro Tour as well as Tekken World Tour and have had really successful events there. High participation rates. Twitch sees really good interaction rates in terms of subscriptions and monetization in those markets. So it's not a matter of do these countries want gaming and esports? It's it's how can we bring more positive opportunities there? And if these countries can work together to do that, that's amazing. I mean, 25 year deal, I can barely get a 25 month deal done. So 25 years, that's, that's some inspirational stuff right there. Yeah, well, just, you know, if we focus on the positive, but I think we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, in the past we saw a lot of local government get involved in esports. Yep. Now we're seeing, we're recently seeing a trend of kind of national, I mean, in Germany, the, the government, uh, some of the governmental parties specifically spoke about esports, you know, in their, in their, um, in their kind of mission statements. Uh, and now we're seeing a multinational agreement. So whether or not this is successful yet remains to be seen. I would, I would imagine that it's very tough to get a, 11 countries any type of country f- to focus on, you know, one type of goal. Um, but this obviously has potential uh, if the parties are, are willing and interested. I mean, listen, like if, if, if gaming and esports can get these countries to work on a 25 year agreement, like what's to stop them from world peace at this point? <laughs> you know, like gaming and esports is going to bring on world peace. Like, you know, one, one Call of Duty match at a time, right? Like, I just think it's, it's really interesting to see how you have a lot of countries who have a lot of uh, open disagreements mm-hmm. coming together in the world of gaming and esports. Yes. Uh, again, like that's we can be aspirational in this stream, yeah. and I think that's fine. Um, but I do think it's interesting that we're able to get this kind of coordination and collaboration when we can't get that in other other areas of the business. I'm looking forward to. Uh to being there when both of you guys get your Nobel Peace Prize for this tournament, but for, for our Camp E. David uh, re- retreat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, on, on to our next story. So Team Liquid parent company Axiomatic raises $25 million in their Series B investment. So the round includes additional investment from existing Axiomatic board members, uh, Washington Wizards owner Ted Leonis's, Warriors co-owner Peter Guber, Tempe Lightning owner Jeff Vinnick, um, Chicago-based firm Vernon and Park Capital also invested into Axiomatic with Karsh. Karsh, um, he will join the Axiomatic board as a result of the investment. Karsh originally the co-founder of Los Angeles-based investment firm Oak Tree Capital, which he helped launch in 1995. Karsh and Guber, there's the connection, were part of the group uh, led by business executive Joe Leica to acquire the Warriors for $450 million in July 2010. So... Kudos to Axiomatic. Um, definitely interesting to see these type of numbers with with this investment. Um, I think uh, we've seen we've seen Team Liquid, Team Liquid spend a lot of money lately, so it's good to see uh, to see uh, another flow of capital coming in. Yeah, but, I was gonna say like this covers the, the the League of Legends team and maybe the Dota team. Um, no, I listen. Like I've worked with with Steve for a long time, and I'm a big fan of what Team Liquid has put together and built over the years and back when they were were all mid team curse like you know we had a great time and i think what they built is truly amazing in the space their new alienware training facility is inspirational for what brands can possibly do in the space and and what the the next generation holds so it's not a surprise that people want to get involved i mean this is the team that won the international this is the team that just won the league of legends north american you know lcs spring split they did well. Uh, had a rough start, but they did well at the uh, at the midseason invitational on, on a European or international competition. Uh, and you know, outside of that, like I just watched them last weekend. They had three different organizations in three different esports win. Mm-hmm. You know, between Rainbow Six and Hungry Box, like that. Just the organization is just oozing success right now. So why not be in a place to to take advantage of that when it comes to uh, getting more money, getting more investment, and building the space. I think Team Liquid, I mean, obviously, Twitch and Team Liquid have a, a close-knit partnership and have for a while. Um, but just from a personal perspective as well, like I just think Steve and Victor and, and Mike and those guys, they put in the effort. They put in the time. They travel all over the world. Uh, they deserve the riches for this. And honestly, it's great. Like I have gotten a chance to talk with Ted. Uh, he's just He just loves it. Um, and I think it's great to have an ownership group that gets it. An ownership group that's going to put more money into it to double down, triple down, um, because they see their investment piling up. Uh, and I think it's it's a really awesome time. And this is just this is just tip of the cap, right? This is tip of the cap. Team Liquid doing it again, continuing to find success. Uh, you know that League of Legends team is not cheap, and they are the most expensive team in esports. Reportedly, I don't know how much they cost, but um, you know he put together an all-star roster, and what do all-stars do? They win. You know, it's no different than the 450 million that you know Goober and the rest of the guys put into the Warriors, brought Kevin Durant on board, and now all of a sudden they can't lose, right? I think that that's symptomatic of what Team Liquid's trying to do across a multitude of esports, which is pretty impressive. You know, I think the most significant thing here is actually that it's a second investment. And for a lot of these very successful individuals, this represents a belief that what they've already invested in is meaningful and going somewhere. We've seen that with recent success from Team Liquid. But don't forget that Axiomatic not only includes Team Liquid, but also Gamer Sensei, an online platform uh, working on the development of like youth gamers, essentially. Coaching platform. uh, Providing coaches to players who know they want to get better at the 
each individual sport. Bitcraft, mm. Super League Gaming, a very popular platform. Maybe not necessarily as uh, outspoken in terms of like content availability, but taking over at the city level, yeah. bringing fathers and sons yeah. to movie theaters around the country to compete with each other in games like Minecraft and League of Legends, and like that's a pretty. Uh, and they're they're producing a lot of noise in that space, and one part not mentioned here in terms of axiomatic is that they're also a part of the Disney Accelerator, which opens mm -hmm. up a lot of capital as they reach additional milestones. So, I'd expect to continue seeing a lot of uh, a lot of good from axiomatic, potentially some more partners now that they've reached this additional round of investment, and uh, they're definitely a, a leading the space in terms of. Uh, their investments. I'm just waiting for them to open it up so that like, you know, average Joe Nate Lindbergh can throw some money in on that. You know, can I can I throw a G in there to get myself some of this uh, ROI? You know, like, this is axiomatic is the next Bitcoin. <laughs> hey, listen, man, like if you look at all those things that the investments they've made, I mean, those are all smart strategic decisions. Everything is attacking different points of the ecosystem. Like you can't argue with it. They've done a really nice job of diversifying. Yeah, and and I think Justin like your main note was the fact that it is an investment in the in the in kind of the venture capital firm, like the holding company, as opposed to just Team Liquid. So this, you know, all of this can go to Team Liquid or nothing. So, um, but it is good to know. I think it does. All these owners are very powerful people, and it is good to know that their initial experiences haven't burned them. Quite the opposite, they're doubling down, uh, and that speaks very positively for our industry as a whole. What we talk about in the last podcast, right? Renewals of sponsorships, right? Mm -hmm. It's easy to fleece someone one time. It's hard to fleece them twice. Clearly, what, what's being delivered by the axiomatic investment firm is good quality results, good quality ROI, continued investment. It's good for everybody. So talking about sponsorship, um, it is tough to to have a sales guy on the podcast and not at least touch on one sponsorship story. So uh, ESL partnered with DHL uh, for their ESL One event. So this deal will see DHL handle event logistics for ESL One series uh, when it comes to Dota, CSGO, transporting stage equipment to and from events. Uh, DHL will also feature on ESL One social media channels and further communication measures throughout the ESL One story. So Nathan, two questions, one, what are your initial thoughts on this? And secondly, you know, knowing where uh, generally when it comes to ESL One as an event, they moved away from Twitch as a platform and focused on Facebook, and it hasn't been too good. And at least the initial story. How do you see that affect the uh, the sponsorship deal? Well, I want to start out with first and foremost that it's an absolute tragedy that Paul Brewer has not been on this podcast, and that's on Paul. I know that's not on you, Maurice. That's on Paul. Paul needs to come on this, this show and talk about his success and his background on the platform. Paul is just an A-plus sales guy. Absolutely. And he's someone that, that I really respect and I constantly compete with for business. Mm -hmm. And it's like him and I talk all the time. We're jabbing at each other. Like I can't, I couldn't be more excited for Paul on this. This is a great opportunity. It brings in a brand new partner in the space. Category, right? It, it is such an obvious opportunity. Like, you know, it's like it's one of those days where I'm sure that Paul was just sitting there, you know, after a long ESL event, he's sitting there, you know, doing some recaps, just typing on email. All of a sudden, he's like watching his team pack all their stuff up and ship it out. And he's like, oh, that stuff's being used by DHL. Okay. Yeah, you know, it'd be really good if we stuck to those guys, you know? Like, it's just, it's, it's innovative, it's smart, it's a natural progression for DHL. 
they're clearly looking at the space and saying like production wise, ton of great stuff. Obviously they understand that this is the, you know, this is the Amazon generation. People are buying stuff online all the time. They're shipping stuff. This is just an easy, easy extension for them. It's just like what they do with their sports partnerships, applying it to esports. a fantastic win. Uh, on top of that, I just also saw this week, they announced Alienware as, a, as an official PC partner, not as shocking of a story, but nonetheless, like man, Alienware gets offers for everything. So for Paul and his team to be able to get, get them to convince, to commit to a long-term partnership, means that what they're doing is is a plus content i think that's important and they've done that even with the fact that they've transitioned off of twitch and listen like i don't think that justin or i are going to come on any event and say that you know twitch is the only destination and the only opportunity uh, i think we've had great success with esl in the past i'd love to work with them again i'd love to see more of their content back on the twitch platform um, but we don't run philanthropies we run businesses and everyone has to decide what's best for their business. And I don't blame anybody for that. Um, and I certainly have the utmost respect for my man, Paul. So if he's doing stuff and he's succeeding, uh, if that works on Facebook, if it works on Twitch, we get it. And I think that's something that, you know, I wanna see Paul be successful. I wanna see him bring more brands in the space because it just makes my RLCS pitch easier. Whenever we see a new category enter into the space, it's always really interesting. Now, I don't know if DHL is the first um, first kind of shipping and logistics partner to enter into the space. I, I, I did not do the research for that, but I think as far as kind of a big brand name, it's probably the first time in recent history. And that is really, really exciting because if DHL is doing this, you can, you can bet that their competitors are looking into the space and like their marketing managers are talking. They're like, why haven't we done anything like this? That's interesting too. I mean, you know, DHL, I don't, I don't, I don't think of first when I think of shipping. I think of FedEx. I think of UPS. Like there are bigger brands they're competing with, so it's good to see them aggressively going out there and finding new ground in the space. It's a great, uh, you know, business extension for them. Yes, that'll turn and that will make the folks at the rest of the groups at FedEx and UPS think, oh man, we got to, we got to think about this space, which is fantastic. Um, but it's, you know, it's not easy to bring a new brand into the space. Not only are you you know, convincing someone to do something that no one else has done before, or at least in the near future done something. Um, but yeah, you've got to convince them to take a leap of faith. And when you've built a successful business, partnering with sports, entertainment, music, uh, to ask them to, you know, slice off a sliver or a chunk and move it to gaming, you know, you're, you're asking someone to take a bit of a leap of, a leap of faith. And that's a tough conversation to have. So kudos to them for being able to do that. Uh, it's certainly better uh, for the industry, right? You know, the rising tide raises all ships. Uh, feel like this is the exact scenario where this is going to be good for everybody. So it wouldn't be an esports boom story without touching upon at least a story that isn't officially reported, but is reported through sources. So Jacob Wolf uh, released another Wolf bomb by saying that the Overwatch League expansion slots are expected to be between 30 to $60 million. So at Activision Blizzard... Um, will focus and negotiate with prospective buyers. Um, sources familiar to those discussions told the ESPN. So the exact price slot um, will be dependent based on a few factors. Among those factors are the general population of the area, or where the team would be based, and the number of players who play Overwatch within that region. Sources told um, Wolf at ESPN. Additionally, if a single market has multiple interested buyers, 
Obviously, the price is subject to being raised as suitors bid against each other. So Activision Blizzard will hope to sell anywhere from four to six expansion slots in the next season. They'll target North America and as they previously officially reported, international cities. Um, so search had said several organizations, both endemic and non-endemic to esports, who did not buy in last year, have a you know a FOMO, fear of missing out, of not being included in the top franchise esports leagues. Um, so uh, Justin, you know, initially, you know, what are your thoughts on this price tag? Um, and and secondly, you know, knowing that we see both endemic and non-endemic organizations who are interested. What organizations or type of organizations would you like to see get involved, and uh, what cities would you like to see? Well, yeah, I think I, I think that um, I think on one hand, um, this is not something I didn't expect. I mean, Overwatch League is running a business, and it's quite natural for a franchise slot to rise in price over time. I mean, just think about where franchise slots for the NFL were in the 1980 versus where they are now. Uh, and anybody who was around, which probably includes most of the multimillionaire and billionaire like potential bidders here, were, then they've seen this. They've seen what happens to franchise slots in various sports before, and they want to. And just as you said, there's a fear of missing out. If I were to guess where potential new teams could be placed, and this is really just a guess, uh, as far as North America is concerned, I mean, there's definitely room for something in Canada. There's mm-hmm. definitely um, there's some potential room for another city or two in the United States, but um, if you look at just the map where these current franchises are um, distributed geographically, there's a lot of room to bring in European teams, and there's definitely additional room to bring in Asian teams. And Overwatch League, or sorry, Overwatch generally is one of the most geographically distributed games in terms of audience and consumption and um, player base. So there's there's a natural fit for a lot of cities left in the world right now. Did we get Tunisia with our contract negotiations? Did Twitch, Twitch get Tunisia? Maybe that would have been a good idea. Um, no, I mean, I, look, listen. If you look at the numbers and you look at the success of Overwatch League, there is a tremendous growth opportunity right now in China and in Southeast Asia. And I think that if they, I think they can very easily knock out major cities just straight down that eastern corridor right china and all of southeast asia and you know even someone in like melbourne sydney like there is just it, i mean it's, i don't want to say it's a cakewalk but man like there is a great amount of opportunity there's a lot of investment opportunities and we know that those games are popular there i think on the flip side europe's gonna be a tough one i really do um i think there's a great opportunity there i think it is such a natural fit uh, you know, Paris, like of all the iconic cities mm-hmm. in the world, Paris, Berlin, um, you know, the Nordics, uh, there's just so many great opportunities there. And I would love to see uh, both a, a, a bigger fleshed out European region and an Asian region. I just think both of those are tremendous opportunities. And, and as Overwatch League cements itself as a truly global esport, it's going to have to grow in those marketplaces. And I, I look forward to people making smart strategic investments in those marketplaces and being able to build those brands and have a really truly global league. Both of you mentioned Europe. Um, I'm going to make a guess here and I think that we'll see a French, probably Paris uh, buy-in. A big reason for that is the fact that the uh, Blizzard sold, or Activision Blizzard sold the TV cable rights 
of the OWL to a, a large French sports broadcaster. So all these games are being broadcasted on on uh, one of the most popular channels in, in France. So I think, you know, even though that might mean a lot, that might not mean a lot, I think for traditional investors, uh, that, that, that does mean a lot with regards to local audience, uh, audience reach. Um, it is interesting to see because um, naysayers will say viewership has been stagnating at the least um so but the price is going up uh, that's that's one part of the argument the other part of the argument kind of from a financial perspective is the deals have just been flowing in uh, both uh, the league has been doing really cool stuff from strategic partners uh, both with distri- uh, distribution and more importantly brand deals but also individual teams have been able to to get some really really cool sponsorships so and that's that's really lovely when you're a potential investor. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Twitch has had some great success selling the media yeah. uh, that goes along with the league. Um, that doesn't get reported because we don't talk about media sales, right? Like, you know, we don't talk about those in the same in the same vein as sponsorships. But yeah, I think the league has done well. I mean, it's unfair to compare week one of the first yep. season ever of Overwatch League and say, oh my gosh, they're down so much. Like the NBA and the NFL, and the NHL, and every other sports property has a big kickoff event. Mm -hmm. And then it dies down. And then as the playoffs come, there are games that get no viewership because there's no one of those teams are competing in the playoffs. Browns, I'm looking at you. (laughs) And then it's like you go into that space of the playoffs, and the finals, and the Super Bowl, or the NBA finals, and this viewership comes right back. Who are we to say that that same thing is not going to happen? Like, it's unfair to look at a half-finished season of Overwatch League, a full circuit of Overwatch League, and say, oh, it's dead, it's declining, oh, we should just abandon it. Like, this is such younger sibling just unfairness that I just think this is one of those things where I I, I had the same conversation with Ben Fisher recently when we just – interviewing and talking about esports for for his stuff he's working on like it's not fair you can't say you can't look at one half of one season and declare victory or 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 failure like this is a this is a program that activision has set themselves a ton of money against a ton of success again and until we crown a champion at the barclays center and we get those viewership numbers and those things happen I don't think it's fair to look at that. And I will say, I've talked to many uh, sports teams and owners and people who are not in Overwatch League, and they don't care. Mm-hmm. They're looking at this and they're saying, Activision's a good partner. Being associated with Activision's a good thing. Being in this space is a good thing. And the numbers that I spent on my sports organization 40, 30, 40, 50 years ago, whenever I made those investments, it's less. Mm-hmm. And if I use my modeling and I look at how this grows and how it goes, this is still a really good investment. And I just think that it's really easy for us to all look at this and say, numbers are down since day one. That's not fair. Um, the one thing I would just point out is that in its very first week, Overwatch, they received over 10 million uniques engaging with that content. It's only grown. So by any standard, it's actually doing very well for the esports space. And it's far exceeded my expectations, only because I was being conservative. But I'm very impressed with Overwatch League viewership today. If I was to comment further on who I thought might be in the running to receive additional franchise slots, 
One thing I would just say is that I know that the Overwatch League is very pleased with the partners they've brought on board to date. I imagine them to con- uh, that they would continue focusing in similar categories, media, sports, uh, big telecom business. And when you think about where the kind of like, let's say powerhouse investors potentially exist in the different regions, you probably will see more telecom in Southeast Asia, that's just natural. Mm-hmm. You probably will see more sports franchises in Europe because that's just natural. But one thing that's worth pointing out is any team who's coming in at this point in time has that much shorter a timeline to be ready for home and away game formats, which are gonna come as soon as the overall league is ready. So I would imagine that there's potential favoritism that'll go towards franchises who are ready to service that home audience with events. I'm not certain on that, that's just my bold guess, but it's potentially true. Expansion teams have done all right. Uh, we're looking at the NHL finals right now, and the Golden Knights are doing themselves just fine. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, again, I think to that point, it is difficult to come in and compete when there's already an initial investment, there's already initial leagues and stuff like that built in. I think, especially for new organizations in the US and Europe, competing, if there is an increased investment in Asia around that talent, it's going to be hard to compete. And that's going to be a really interesting marketplace to see in the next couple of years is how do those players flush out how does the league deal with a depletion of top tier talent because they're going to be more separated around the different parts of the world but man wouldn't it be cool to just have like asia north america europe and then like the grand finals like i I, that's that's olympic level stuff and like activision's going like yeah we're just gonna we're gonna do this on like a tuesday like that is so cool to me a lot of investors were hesitant to get into the OWL because they wanted to see a proof of concept first. Um, to both of your points, I think if there's one thing the OWL has proven it is the fact that this is a real thing and it's here to stay. Um, when it comes to social engagement, when it comes to steady viewership numbers, um, it is it is and brand deals. It's amazing. And also to, to further up, go on, uh, go on your point. I actually think that if we forget about the first day viewership, right, or the first week viewership, you're looking at a success story. It's just that the first day was such a historic moment for esports that, you know, everyone who is somehow involved is like, I want to check this out at least once. And everything after that has been the viewership numbers that Overwatch League game gets right now is higher than a lot of critics. uh, kind of, you know, their guess for what the viewership numbers would be for the first day. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, so Maurice, hot take. You're, you are the steward of a billionaire's investment firm. Are you buying in next time? Are you, are you buying it? And where are you buying it? What is yeah. your city of choice? So, so my, Besides Tunisia, because Twitch already has that. So my, 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 my general take when it comes to the LWL, and, and I'm not in those boardrooms as much as you are, but my take is generally, if you're just looking at the OWL as an investment, it's brought, you know, I don't think you might not make your money out of it uh, five, six years from now. However, if you're looking at the OWL as a platform to, um, to increase your overall, you know, um, horizontal investments in the space, um, it's probably a good idea. I mean, we're seeing two types of models being used right now in Boston. It's pretty much focused on just the OWL, whereas if we're looking at Dallas uh, or Houston with Infinite and, and some of the other teams, they're really using the OWL not only as their investment 
per se, but also as a kind of a feeding system for additional business and additional growth for all of their other side businesses who are involved with the industry. So in that case, even if six, seven years from now, the OWL isn't as successful as we thought it would be, at least for those six and seven years, it has helped grow all these other businesses that are um, that this ownership group is invested in as well. So what city are you buying? Are you buying Amsterdam? I wouldn't buy Amsterdam, no. What I are you gonna buy? Um, if I would buy, um, it's tough. One, I mean, one, one really, I think France is a really good, really good thing. Um, a lot of people would say Vegas, although I think the, the price tag would be very expensive. I think it's probably easier to do France. Uh, so yeah, I, I would love to see a French OWL team because it also represents, besides representing a new market with France, it also represents a new language category. Well, you've seen my pants, Maurice. I'm not allowed. Uh, I'm not allowed in many boardrooms with those pants on. But well, you're allowed in French boardrooms. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, for me, if I'm if I'm if I'm buying, if I get one spot, I don't think I can resist Seattle. I just think it's. Uh, it, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an Amazon yeah. homer, but like, it's a great spot. It's a great city. It's a tech hub. Uh, there's just a lot of value there. Uh, you know, Key Arena is obviously wide open for usage. Um, I, I, I like Seattle. Uh, Chicago is another market I think is really great. But to your point, Paris is, it's hard not to fall in love with Paris, right? How about you, Justin? No, I would agree. I think Paris is a definite bet. Uh, as far as North America is concerned, I'd probably agree with uh, something like Toronto, Vancouver, Seattle. Yeah, Canada as well. Um, when you think of like the populations of people, however, there's um, in traditional sports, there's at least a little more density of teams on the east coast so there's potential room that there's just the right investors existing there but i really can't say beyond that i'm just not sure but i'm i'm, I'm watching <laughs> well we'll see we'll we'll, re- we'll revisit this podcast after all those uh, spots get leaked i'm waiting for justin to just wild card us and be like maldives yeah. <laughs> maldives overwatch spot well, all justin these, uh, is like i got this guys well all these esports gambling websites are yeah, all yeah. based out of the maldives uh, anyway, so. cyprus maldives uh tunisia isle of man bought by bought by bitcoin investor <laughs> with a thumb drive well, I'm, I'm glad i just i'm glad we discussed my retirement plan already on this podcast i've said too much um, so before we get into uh, Justin's story, um, there's a, one story that, that kind of broke the traditional sports world last week, and it, I think it's important for us to talk about it, especially I have two guests um, who can give their opinion. So that's the Sports Gambling Act. So last week, um, an act went through that basically gave the states rights to legalize uh, sports gambling if they so see fit. Um, I think it has to go through Congress, um, but this opens up the door for legal sports gambling and a lot of a lot of focus was on traditional sports, but also a lot of media was like, okay, what does this mean for esports? So uh, with two, two guests that are well-versed in the area of expertise, um, let's start with you, Justin. What do you think that this act, assuming that this goes through, means for for esports if it means anything so my personal opinion is that the let's just call it legalization or just allowance generally of gambling in esports still has quite the road to travel before any kind of mass adoption or Mm -hmm. even like comfortability from game developers right um 
this is definitely a step that I could see having some benefit to anyone who's like eager to see gambling in esports. However, like I said, the road for esports is still long, so I wouldn't call this any type of steroid to getting that kind of overcame. Uh, when gambling comes in esports, if it does, uh, it will only come after there's been a lot of due consideration to uh, abuse, uh, legalities, like rightful place and time, uh, and those things are going to take quite a while yet. I mean, from a, a personal philosophical standpoint, like, you know, I believe in states' rights versus federal oversight. I think this is a great opportunity for states to exercise the rights that they feel comfortable with, and that's great. At the end of the day, there's only, like, two or three states that are even, like, at the point where they can yeah. adopt this stuff. Uh, my, you know, obviously my home state of New Jersey now, uh, Las Vegas, like, there are examples of things. Um, if you look at, at, at what has happened since, most pro sports leagues have not necessarily come out in full support of this to begin with. Mm -hmm. And these are much more established, much more well-paying professions. Uh, so certainly from that perspective, like this is a hurdle. And certainly we've, 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 we've stepped forward to a new age of, of sports gambling and stuff like that. But uh, for eSports, this is a long way away. This is a, a long road, even for traditional sports mm -hmm. gambling. Um, but, you know, as, as Justin and I and you, Maurice, you're, you originate from Europe, this is natural. This is a normal part of, of everyday life is, is just, you know, throwing a fiver on, on the, you know, the, the, the trifecta of the Premier League matches. Like, it's something that I think most of civilized society has adopted. And, you know, I think that, that over time this will become a natural part of, of our civilization in the U.S., but... This is a step forward for that. It will certainly help bring more sponsorship and more revenue dollars into the space. But will it change esports dramatically for the next five or ten years? Probably not. Yeah, and and, and also there's you touched on like traditional sports. Well, for traditional sports, at least right, it drives it can drive a large part of revenue. Number one, a, a new sponsorship category. Um, I don't think it's going to up media rights as much. Maybe. But also, you know, maybe they get this uh, percentage that the NBA wants. Um, but it, it can have a good influence, positive influence on their bottom line. When it comes to esports, I mean, esports by itself for a lot of publishers isn't a net positive. So maybe it can help a little bit. But the risk they're taking by bringing on a gambling sponsor, now all of a sudden that gambling sponsor is not only connected to the esports league that they're running, it's also connected to their publisher. And if you have loot boxes, I don't think that's something you want to do. No, I, I listen. The other part of this that is is underappreciated is the reality of data. Mm -hmm. In sports, I can sit there with a spreadsheet or with a, with a with a matrix, and I can sit there and I can plot out shots missed, shots made. I can plot out all the data that I need. I can put together complex equations, decide what the likelihood is of Team X beating Team Y based on weather, who's at home, who's away, what time of year it is, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I can have some really good educated betting lines on these things, right? When it comes to esports and gaming, that data is housed almost exclusively by the game publisher and developer. Therefore, how are you able to pull that data out without getting that game publisher on board. And that's where I don't, again, I don't think game publishers, just like the NBA, may or may not 
be super caring whether or not it's like, hey, that's fine. If you want to do that, it's not our thing. But in order for gambling folks to be able to have, and sports betting companies to, be able to put a relatively educated line out there, they have to have data to make those decisions, which means game publishers have to share that data, which if you make a teen rated game or an E for everyone rated game, you are really unlikely to share that data with those there people. There already are uh, Betaway and, and some and some other, I think, Patty, and, and they, they already have eSports gambling. I don't think it's a large part of their business, but they already have it. But it's not it's not sophisticated gambling. Most of it is just like, who's going to win the match? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think that it will be, I think most, you know, DraftKings announced their gambling arm. Uh, I think Patty's going to enter the U.S., I think for all of them, they will have an esports section, which obviously can drive some potential revenue, but I don't think it'll be a large part of their business anytime soon. Looking from the macro perspective, though, right? Like if you're a big company out there and you're involved in sports betting and someone says, hey, I want to lay some bets on esports and it's 1% of your bets, you don't care if you, if you get fleeced on that. Hey, that guy, if that, that guy or girl is betting, great. They want to throw some bucks on esports, fantastic. But there is no way that esports gambling will ever grow to a big industry unless there is data to back it up so that the house continues to have a more educated answer to the question of who wins in this scenario and why. And I think that it's fine for the time being, but long term, if a, if, if a gambling house does not have a better understanding of who's going to win and lose, they will not allow for big-name bets because they do not want Leicester City. They do not want the Vegas Golden Knights. They don't want those situations happening on a frequent basis, and therefore they will either figure out a way to get that data or they will just not allow bets to be that big, and, and esports gambling will never get to that standpoint, which honestly, I don't know which is better, to be mm-hmm. honest. I don't, I don't know what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, to reiterate one of Nathan's points, I think the most significant impact we'll see in the near future is some of the positive halo effects. Um, people who in their minds are thinking about a preparation for this state in time when this is a very active part of the industry are going to be further delving into increased data efficiency and availability. Um, as soon as betting around esports becomes something that's more well-defined, then that leaves categories like social wagering or pick em type challenges to also then, as a result, be defined and less restrictive or less risk-based, um, and those could become an advantageous part of fan engagement with esports, but it's all gonna take some time. I think the biggest immediate value to esports is the fact that a lot of sports gambling houses are going to want to look to esports mm-hmm to advertise their sports yes. gambling. And we'll want to say like, hey, sure, throw a throw a bet in on this one esports event. But also, do you know we have an emporium of NHL, NBA, NFL, those kinds of things. I think that, to me, this looks more like a recruiting tool that esports teams and leagues and events will benefit from from a sponsorship and advertising perspective uh, as a way to bring in people to the more mainstream world of sports betting. I would love to see the data from the patties of the world that already have esports betting in a country where you have a lot of people that are both interested in traditional sports and esport. I would love to see if there is any overlap between their betting habits. If people that bet on esports also bet on traditional sports, 
uh, or if or or if people if people that bet on esports, how much they bet. I think those type of people will have, those type of companies will have a large a large advantage because they have that data to go about. Yeah, I mean, listen, I've I've gone to the ICE conference. I've gone to a bunch of different gambling events in the U.S. and Europe. Um, it's certainly a discussion topic. It's certainly a point of interest. Um, you know, when I talk with those big gambling houses, a lot of it is just having the full portfolio. Yeah. And it's not a matter of whether or not they win or lose on 1% of their business. It's that they have more control over the rest of it. And they just want to make sure that if someone says, hey, I've bet on all these matches. I'd love to throw a fiver on this. They can do that. And I think that is where, that's where esports betting is right now from a organized professional standpoint, commercial standpoint. Um, which yeah, I think is fine. I don't think that, that esports is going to be the focus of, of sports gambling in the U.S. for some time. So, I'm oh, sorry. I was just going to ask, do you think that officially organized betting uh, has positive effects in terms of like the existing corruption we see in esports? So, I actually have kind of a, a counter attribute than most people have. So, most people will say, oh, no. You have, you know, maybe your your Overwatch player has a minimum salary of sixty thousand dollars a year, but maybe your Smash player, you know, he doesn't make a living out of esports. You know, you throw him five five grand, and now you know it's very attractive. Um, I think initially it'll have some negative effects. Um, I think eventually, two things: one, illegal gambling is a reality, so people that people that want to use these type of nefarious tricks already has the have the existing tools to do that the only large difference is that most the all big betting companies hire someone like genius sports who has an existing esports arm and they are companies that what they actively do is by using all the betting the betting uh, data they can find these outliers really really quickly so I think initially you might have some crazy, you know, you might have some group of people, group of people trying to, to, to do some stuff. I think they're already doing it. Um, but I think eventually um, this people, things like Genius Sports will be implemented. And I think it actually might be a net good as far as corruption. But I would, so I'm, I'm still torn on the mm-hmm. issue. But another question I would pose is, is the risk great enough in terms of like losing your esports career, losing your esports involvement, that people will be deterred from getting caught in corruption. And something worth pointing out is Korea, known for corruption in mm-hmm. recent years around esports. That said, Korea has an 18% population who believes esports is a viable career path. That's more than any other country in the world. Mm-hmm. And they were and they're a country that's been caught recently in corruption. Yeah. Whereas in the U.S., despite all the success we've seen with esports recently, I, I'm gonna venture to bet that, bet that's fine. Uh, I'm gonna <laughs> venture to guess that there's still a large population that sees uh, esports as the alternative, right? Like, yeah. okay, I'm out of esports now. I'm just gonna go back to college and get another job. It's not quite as indoctrinated as we've seen in South Korea in recent years, but that's where the corruptions existed. People have been forced out of esports forever. So I don't know. These things. These are all details that don't necessarily uh, help derive any conclusions or what's right or wrong. It's just things I'm thinking about when evaluating my opinion on it. Yeah, I I don't think you can, you know, for the people who are afraid that their local Smash tournament will get corrupted, I doubt 
we'll see betting on those type of tournaments any types anytime soon. I think most betting sites will focus on the OWL, the NALCS, um, and and maybe some CS:GO tournaments. Yeah, I think it's really hard to to have a real strong um, path forward on this. I think that what we've seen in Europe, especially with the Premier League, especially with professional soccer. Um, you know, most of the teams, their marquee partner is a is a casino house or a betting company. Like, and those that that money directly goes into paying players enough to avoid bribes. And you know, I think that that is certainly a, a rationale that helps. If you, you know, if we can pay people more money, if we can make it, if we can make it financially, you know, terrible. If you get kicked out of esports for life. Uh, I think then you, you, you set the tone, right? Like you look at professional sports, the amount of money that someone would have to bribe someone to, you know, throw a baseball match or something is, is incredibly expensive. Um, and I think that that's, you know, the reality. And at the end of the day, I think the amount of money placed, the amount of money of bets placed on esports is going to stay relatively small in the commercial above the board space. The, mm-hmm. the, the illegal betting yeah. can't anything. That, that, that is... That's a totally separate issue, mm-hmm. but I think if you look at it from the commercialized standpoint, you look at it from that that, that point of view, um, I think bringing it out in the open, making it an opportunity, working on it, will at least address the issue and help us to learn the best ways possible. And honestly, most of these companies that want to provide legal betting, whether it's DraftKings or William Hill or whoever, like, they're all about a level playing field because mm-hmm. they feel like they have the data, they know exactly what they should do. They can help lead this revolution forward. I, Again, I think that there's positive that can be made. There's good things that can come from this. There's careers that can be helped because of this. There's a whole rising tide that can raise all ships. But certainly it's very easy to look at this and say, hot take, bad. Yeah. And I think we need to avoid knee-jerk reactions. Look at what the opportunities are. Look at the companies like MGM who can really make some positive effects on this business and help guide the industry forward. I just really feel like there is a way forward that's positive. We have to work towards it together uh, in order to avoid the pitfalls uh, of what we've talked about. So just to wrap things up, um, Nathan, your story has is, is already known. Um, I would highly recommend um, new listeners to check out the previous episode with Nathan and while the news might be a bit old skip to the second part of the of the episode and hear all about Nathan's story um, I feel but, like that episode's cut into like nine segments <laughs> like 90 minutes long well, that's, like, well this, this episode's also relatively going on relatively uh, long but it's good I, mean, I when, told you man you bring me this program yeah. you're gonna get a double episode uh, I, don't, right? I don't mind it at all I, I missed last week so, so I can give the audience a treat yes uh, but you know, Justin, you know, I think it's a, sh- it's a shame if we don't touch at least a little bit on, on your background. So, you know, what 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 is kind of your your story? How did you end up where you are right now at Twitch? Sure. Um, I've been in esports for quite a while, whether as uh, someone working on things as my second job, passion base or full time in the industry. Um, as a gamer, at least, I started out kind of playing console games really early, 2000s and 90s. Um, but it was somewhere around uh, the early 2000s, I was playing a lot of PC games, 
not necessarily competitive game yet, games yet, MMOs like EverQuest 2 and got into WoW like just about everyone. But around 2004, 2005, I got into uh, FPS games so like Counter-Strike. Um, and then around uh, sometime also in 2005, as kind of a natural step of progression, uh, already seeing some of the things going on around the world with um, various competitive games. As a competitor born from being an athlete all my life, I leaned into organized competition and wanting to get involved in tournaments, and that's just what I did. I started out like most esports veterans, and I started organizing tournaments online or getting involved in the few available ones that existed. And as time went on from 2005 forward, you know, I, I, I spent time as an event volunteer. Um, I spent time working uh, on sales and marketing and esports. I did a lot of entrepreneurial things. I started a company with some friends called It's Go To. We ran a number of various online community websites. We operated esports teams such as It's Go To Esports and Mortality. We were heavily involved in. 2012 North American Starcraft um, and this went on for several years but it wasn't until just a handful of years ago I guess now that uh, there I was working my in my government career that I had that whole period when I was just spending all my nights and weekends on esports and I kind of realized you know esports jobs were all of a sudden a real thing and people were getting paid for this and I left my um, I left my dark Washington DC basement <laughs> with no windows uh, that I was working in with the government and I moved to California uh, I'd met several contacts in the industry from the various years of working on teams and events. Um, and I had connected with some folks at Razor, mm -hmm. and I immediately got a job working on the Americas region for esports at Razor. I quickly became the head of esports at Razor, focused on sponsorships, product, marketing, licensing, everything esports, part of the global marketing team. And I was there for a little over a year when I was talking to some friends at Twitch. Mm -hmm. And Twitch, only a little over two and a half years ago, was kind of really building this esports department because most people don't realize this, but despite Twitch's involvement in esports for several years, the actual esports department at Twitch is only a couple of years old. It was only a few couple of years ago where somebody said, we should probably harness this you know, esports thing that's kind of like happening all around us and through this company. And uh, myself and another person, Nick Allen, were some of the first hires for Esports at Twitch, we've built the department to what it is today. Nick Allen moved on at the end of last year. And since I've been leading the esports department and the various teams involved there, working with people such as Nathan to create events, create leagues, tournaments, circuits, work with publishers and game developers, help realize their esports success, monetize it with teams such as Nathan, keep the best esports on platform, help them optimize their businesses, acquire the few new things that come along the year, like Overwatch League or NBA 2K League. And then, as I kind of alluded to, we lean in a lot when it comes to developing additional esports properties, whether that's with a game creator partner or some industry peers to kind of continue increasing the size of that whole esports pie on Twitch. And, um, you know, I, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And it's kind of funny after building this team for a couple of years and uh, realizing these couple different missions and paths forward with regard to the strategies that definitively, definitively belong to esports and Twitch. Uh, nowadays, we're just focused on innovating as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Begrudgingly, working with <laughs> Nathan and his parents. Uh, no, I also think that one of my, my favorite um, you know, stories of Justin is the fact that he got to work with Faker. And, and, what and, was that? And, and when he was at Razor, they worked with, uh, with the guys at, uh, at SKT Telecom T1. Which yeah, so when I was leading esports at Razor, um, doing sponsorships there, I worked with our Korean team to bring SKT1 
into Team Razor as a Razor sponsored team. As a part of that uh, arrangement, we worked very closely with Faker, we tested products. Uh, he, in fact, helped determine the direction of some products that are even now just being released in the very recent times because that's typically the, the, the product development cycle. cycle. Um, and that was, you know, that was amazing going from esports, despite spending 40 to 60 hours a week as a pastime, having tons of my own money invested in trying to create these businesses and build experience. Um, as soon as I was in my first full-time job, one of the very first things I got to do was work with the best in the world at the most popular game in the world. It was, it was validating. I really enjoyed it. So I think it would be a shame not to touch on this, especially because you have experience building a team in esports. So as type of a, like a team decision maker, how, because um, I, I know there, there are quite a few listeners who who are interested in the space. Mm -hmm. you know, what is What are the things you are looking for for anyone that's trying to either you know transition or enter the space? Sure, one of the number one things I would point out is that in the last handful of years, or even more recently, the last couple or few years, uh, the market has shifted quickly from this idea of an esports manager even being a job anymore. Mm -hmm. When companies were dipping their toes in or figuring out their esports strategy, a lot of them were hiring esports specialists, esports coordinator, mm -hmm. esports manager. Well, the fact of the matter is it's not even a real job anymore because esports is not this mystical unicorn. Esports is an industry. Esports is a market segment. Esports is a type of entertainment. Esports is a type of sport. The same jobs that you've known for several years, such as marketer, <coughs> sorry, program manager, operations specialist, event expert, league operator. These are the actual jobs in esports. They just happen to be in esports. So as people are out there and think about, well, how do I get a job in esports or what are the opportunities? The reality is the opportunities are the degrees and the job experiences that are already in front of you. Working at a company, however, that has a business line or a focus on esports is where you make that an esports job. Well, basically what you're saying is you can just follow, like, if you have, if you can do it outside of esports, you can educate them on the esports part. Absolutely. I mean, I'll use Nathan as an example. Nathan is a sales. <laughs> Nathan is a salesperson. If I were to take Nathan out of esports, he might lose some subject matter expertise in whatever other field I drop him in. But he's still a salesperson. Mm -hmm. He's just a salesperson that works in esports. Uh, I find it a little hard to kind of like align myself to any specific career right now, leading such a large team. That said, at Razor, I was a marketer, leading mm -hmm. a marketing team with several marketing focuses, working in esports, and. When I first started at Twitch two and a half years ago, I initially came in as a program manager, running various projects interconnected to produce specific operations that belong to larger strategies for esports success at Twitch. That's program management. Now I lead the department at Twitch. That's a little bit different job, but it's still general management, something you can do anywhere. Yeah, and I, I mean, I will say two things on that. Um, you know, first of all, I think that Justin's a great example of no es like. Any esports is good esports, and if you are working with whether it's part time, whether it's volunteering at events, anything you can do in the space is good experience in the space. And I think, you know, one of the things that Justin and his team, and really anyone I talk to in esports, looks at is like, what have you done? Sure, you work in you work in finance on Wall Street. Great, that's a good lucrative career. But like, are you volunteering on the weekends? Are you finding yourself involved in different things? Are you you know are you moonlighting as a you know, writer on an esports blog, like understand the craft, understand the industry, but spend time appreciating and being involved in yourself 
because I think when we look at who we want to bring in for the next generation of like of Twitch and Twitch is going through constant evolution, we want people who are going to move the company forward, not redo what we've done before, but move the company forward. And that means you have a background, you understand what's going on in the space, you understand those opportunities and you can help us build that next evolution of what Twitch is going to be. By especially bringing professional skills to the table that you've also developed elsewhere. It's really a total package we're looking for. I think it, I think out of the, you know, the 30, 40 guests we have had on this show so far, I think a good 80% of those are people who just had tremendous skills outside of esports and someone who was a decision maker in esports saw the fact that they could bring those skills into it. And so I'll teach you about esports but you can teach me about sales. You can teach me about marketing. You can yeah, as long as the passion is there, I will take professional yeah. skills over a lot of things. Yeah, my favorite, or my, one of my favorite YouTube videos is Brandon Beck's speech at Dice like three or four years ago where he talks about Riot being black licorice. He's like, I don't want you, he's like, I don't want Riot to ever be vanilla. I want them to be black licorice because either you love black licorice <laughs> or you hate black licorice, and that's a good thing. And he talks about when they hired their head of HR and how he came from Starbucks and all these like really, really professional, like <clears throat> non-endemic organizations. What they didn't know was that he was a Moonlight writer for uh, MTG Fireball. And he was writing like, you know, like magic draft guides and build documents in his free time. And for them, that's solidified why he was the right choice. Because not only was he a great HR person, because he's proven that these blue chip brands time and time again, but also he had the passion, he had the desire, he had the interest, and that's what sold them. So I think for you know for all of us, we're, we want top tier people. We want you know, people who are really working hard, really who are excelling in their space. They're the ones that are gonna push the industry forward. On a side note, JD and I started out working together on Maurice, probably one of your favorite products out there, the Rocket League Championship <laughs> yeah. Series. And that is really where Justin and I built up not only our professional relationship, but obviously our friendship, which I like to think is still well intact, uh, just, <laughs> despite my pants. I shared my McDonald's with you. You did. <laughs> I appreciate that. Hashtag ad. Uh, but I, you know, it, it was one of those things where Justin and I were both relatively brand new at Twitch. And we were given this opportunity to work with a, a very unknown uh, developer at the time in Psyonix. They'd done a lot of great side projects, launched their first game. It was a massive success. And it was like, Nathan, Justin, <clears throat> figure this out. Justin, run it. Nathan, monetize it. And like, Justin and I are like, who are you? What's your deal? What's going on with you? Can I trust you? Do I like you? I don't know. And uh, I think it was honestly, it was, it was Rocket League season two finals in Amsterdam. When, uh, when Justin and I really you know, came together, we had a bunch of great sponsors on board, and we had launched two fully successful live championship events for Rocket League. We had hit new con you know, peak concurrent totals. We had almost hit 100,000 peak concurrence, which was way above our initial projections, uh, and nobody drowned in a canal. And we were just <laughs> so emphatically excited. And it was great. Like it was really, it was one of those times where we sat at our after party and just kind of cheers and said, "Like, wow, we we've really done some and cool stuff in this space." Nathan isn't lying because in the last episode he mentioned this story as well. It's like, oh, oh this was when I felt really, you know, like, oh, this this can be something. Um, gents, thank you very much. Um, people want to follow you. Where can you do that? 
Sure, I'm reachable at JD Dell on Twitter. Pretty standard. It's my initials. Uh, you have a Twitch channel yet? No. I got to work on that. I have several Twitch channels, including some of the first partnered channels on Justin.tv, but they are no longer in use. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I'm just at the real Nate on Twitter and uh, Twitch.tv slash MoneyBadger. Feel free to subscribe for your chance to have one of the most epic emotes on the Twitch platform. Well, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week.